Ireland looked out for its own interests, the same as every other country did in the Second World War. And as we've discussed, with the possible exception of a late entry on America's side, Ireland's best interests were in neutrality. to the Irish at War. I'm your host David Cummins. Today I'm talking with John Dorney on Ireland's neutrality during the Second World War. Now if you don't know John Dorney he's got a fantastic website called The Irish Story and he also has the Irish History Show podcast which he runs with his mate Cahill Brennan. Both of those are fantastic and are well worth having a look at. I just want to say thanks very much to everybody for the support that you've given me on Twitter, Instagram and social media. It's very humbling to have so many people like and retweet and share my posts. Thank you so much for that. Also, a big thanks to everybody who has listened, liked and reviewed the podcast on iTunes. That's great. It's getting a lot of traction now. So thank you so much. And as I said last week, I'm just after losing my job like so many others. Um, So... If you could support me on Patreon for as little as three euro, you know, the price of a cup of tea or a coffee or even a big bar of dairy milk, you know, it might not mean much to you, but it would mean the world to me if you could. But if you can't, that's fair enough. And lastly, I want to apologize up front. The sound on this podcast is less than perfect. Our interview was done on Zoom. And for whatever reason, the feedback was just terrible on it. And so I had to keep on asking John to repeat himself because a lot of what he was saying was just inaudible because of the crackling and the feedback. And I had to cut almost half an hour off this interview because it was just inaudible. So apologies for that. But I think you'll still enjoy what John has to say on Ireland's neutrality during the Second World War. So, John, just in the last week, we've had victory in Europe Day, VE Day, uh, on 7th to 8th of May. And, of course, the conversation always crops up. You know, Ireland was neutral, but how neutral was it? Was it pro-German or was it pro-Allied? Aside from the sheer number of Irish men and women who served in the uh, Allied forces Let's, let's just bring right back to the start. And we're not going to talk about the, the, the men who served and women who served. Uh, that's going to be for another day. But let's just bring it back to the reasons why Ireland declared neutrality in the first place. Well, I'd like to answer in 1939. But unfortunately, I have to be long-winded and take you all the way back to 1922 and the Anglo-Irish Treaty. So the Anglo-Irish Treaty today is back on the beginning of Irish independence from Britain and the foundation of the Irish state. And then while there's a lot of truth in that, that's not the way the British saw it at the time. The British saw it at the time as uh, disengaging from Ireland, from Southern Ireland, militarily, while retaining their vital interests. And one of the clauses of the treaty is, in time of war, the Irish state was obliged to give Britain the use of its ports and naval facilities. And the British also retained three naval ports in Ireland, which were occupied by, by the uh, Royal Navy up to 1938. 
the British were very conscious of the importance of naval ports in the context of the Battle of the Atlantic in the First World War, where food and munitions coming from America were under constant attack by German U-boats, unrestricted submarine warfare. So the British had imposed a blockade on Germany. The Germans retaliated with unrestricted submarine warfare in the Atlantic. So the British viewed this as, as a vital part of the treaty. What they thought they had created by the treaty was a, a loyal Commonwealth country that would you know, accede to their, to their strategic needs. And a lot of time in the treaty negotiations actually was spent you know, discussing this, this very point. But if you fast forward to 1938, it looks very different because who's in power? Not the pro-treatyites of 1922, who also had reservations about you know a lot of aspects of the treaty, but the anti-treatyites are their heirs under Eamon de Valeri and Fianna Fáil. And once Fianna Fáil had come to power in 1932, their objective basically was to demolish the treaty, and they you know demolished loads of parts of it. They abolished the oath of fidelity to the monarch of England, king. They abolished the governor general. They abolished the senate, and so on and so on. But for our purposes, the important date here is 1938. In 1938, which is, of course, the year before the Second World War broke out, as a result of intensive series of negotiations between de Valera's government and Neville Chamberlain's government in Britain, and they settled what had been called the economic war. And the economic war had been de Valera had refused to pay back all the money that was owed for the land acts. But this was hurting both countries, actually. Like, it hurt Britain more than you might think, because Britain depended on Irish agriculture to a very large extent for food. And the new in the event of a war, that would be very important, again, as it had been in the first world war. So in settling the economic war and re-establishing kind of more or less free trade of, of goods, one of the concessions the British made was they handed back these three ports. And they also rescinded the article in the treaty where ERA had to give Britain access to the Atlantic ports in time of war. So that was rescinded year before the war. There was a new and agreement between the Valerian government and the Chamberlain's in return for settling what they called the economic war, one of the elements of this deal was that Chamberlain handed back the three treaty ports. And these were in Queenstown, now Cove, Bearhaven, and Laxwilly, up in the Dun- Donegal Derry border. Why did he do this? Uh, you know, there was a couple of technical reasons they advanced, which was their ports were in poor repair. Um, if they held them against a the hostile Irish government, they'd have to buy more resources. And they hoped that by having this conciliatory agreement, the Irish would give them to them voluntarily in the war. They didn't have to anymore, but they would do it, was their line of thinking. And also after the Munich Agreement, Chamberlain seems to have thought that he had avoided war with Hitler. So in hindsight, this was a really big mistake on the British side. And people today in Ireland will, will say, oh, well, it didn't make any difference. Um, they had ports in Northern Ireland and so on. But this is a rationalisation. The truth is that you know having ports would have made a difference. It would have increased the range of their... Uh, aircraft and of their planes and so on, patrolling and escorting the uh, Atlantic convoys. Uh, and this is why it was such a major bone of contention. But they very much misjudged, you know, De Valera's thinking and, and his political position. But to answer your question in a roundabout way, why did the Irish declare neutrality? Well, because Eamon De Valera's government, even though it had mellowed a little bit by, by 1939, was the heir of the anti-treaty IRA. You know, their entire ideology was the independence of all of Ireland. Whether they were sincere about this, you can argue, but they, they would constantly argue this is a crime against Irish nationality and so on, and we can't even consider you know, joining the war until you get out of Northern Ireland. Secondly, a lot of members of the government, particularly Frank Aiken, who was the uh, Minister for uh, Defensive Measures during the Second World War or the emergency, was extremely anti-British. And I mean, most of them had a background in the, in the IRA. And thirdly, I mean, de Valera was very conscious that 
entering the war on Britain's side was what had finished John Redmond back in the days of the First World War. And he constantly brought this up in the Second World War, probably to the distraction of, of the British. But, you know, there was a real uh, possibility of, of internal conflict in, in the Irish state, what was known in the war as, as ERA. The IRA was not as strong as it had been. It had um, gone through loads of splits, but it was still a significant force, and there was lots of people still in sympathy with it. And had there been entry into the war on Britain's side, de Valera feared, well, we could have some other new civil war in Ireland. And it's only 20 years since the, since the actual civil war or so. And finally, one other reason is de Valera was very conscious that Ireland would be virtually defenceless in, in the event of aerial attack in the war. And this was another reason he gave that we couldn't afford to see our cities kind of reduced to rubble when they had no real means of defending themselves. Like the Irish Air Corps was very small. It only had a few antiquated planes. There was almost no air defense systems. So basically, the short answer is in defense of Irish sovereignty, they declared neutrality in, in demonstration of Irish sovereignty. Um, a certain hostility to Britain, it has to be said, and the fear of internal uh, conflict should they enter the war. So you mentioned the, the importance of the treaty ports, but they were returned at the end of the economic war. But what was Britain's expectations of those? The treaty ports and, and the Atlantic ports generally would have been extremely useful uh, in the context of the new Battle of the Atlantic, the Second World War version. But in, in the context of 1939-40, you know, food and munitions from America. So if this is cut off, I mean, Britain is in big trouble. So this is, as I said, a vital theatre of, of warfare. Um, and the naval ports, as I said, they enable you to um, fly escort planes and escort patrol vessels much, much further in the Atlantic. And Britain, I suppose, kind of expected that era would just allow them to use it in times of war. That's right. And I mean, it, it seemed kind of naive because they knew all about de Valera and, and, and Fiona Fall and, and their kind of outlook. Um, but Chamberlain's idea seems to have been if you reach this kind of conciliatory deal with de Valera and if you settle some of the outstanding questions like the economic war and so on like this, that, you know, he'll voluntarily give them to you. But they, they were totally wrong about that. They were shocked and dismayed. Uh, and one of the people who was not so shocked was, was Winston Churchill. But he, um, as we'll probably talk about, Churchill had a very belligerent kind of um, a view on this situation. Yeah, that'll be Churchill, all right. Uh, actually, speaking of Churchill, let, let's get into Churchill because, uh, well, he had both the carrot and stick approach. Uh, he, A, offered Irish unity, and it was a fairly concrete offer in a sense. But then he also you know, ordered General Bernard Montgomery uh, to draw up invasionary plans for, you know, parts of Ireland as well. So, you know, he, he's two sides of a coin here. He's both political and militarily trying to get Ireland to bend its will. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to back up a little bit, I mean, one of the misconceptions I think about this in, in, in uh, popular understanding is that Churchill, you know, had some sort of ad hoc offer of opportunity to aim and declare. It's a lot more than that. I mean, first of all, um, Churchill took over in, in May from Neville Chamberlain. But, but much before that, Chamberlain's government and the Irish civil servants had been working, you know, on, on an offer of Irish unity in return for these ports. So it was, it was before Churchill it was thought of. Now, the crux of the issue was, as far as the Irish were concerned, was what, what they came up with, what all of these offers amounted to was they'll put a, a team of civil servants together and they'll talk about a constitutional arrangement and uh, to work out what form Irish unity will take after the war, subject to the agreement of Northern Ireland, right? And everybody knew that the, the part of Northern Ireland that then existed was never going to agree to this, never even going to contemplate it. Yeah. So, you know, De, De Valeri didn't take this as a, and his government didn't take this as a good faith offer. Now, in addition, though, I should say, like, Frank Aiken, 
who, as I said, was, was a senior minister in the government on a visit to America in 1941. And so before America entered the war officially, but when it was very much uh, on, on Britain's side in terms of supplies and so on, mm-hmm. met with Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, and said, uh, and Roosevelt said, you know, well, if you get Irish unity, will you, will you enter the war? And, and Reagan said, no. <laughs> you know, Reagan said, no, we'll, we'll be neutral anyway. We, we, take the, take, we would take Irish unity and we'd still be neutral. Yeah, so there was quite an obdurate attitude on the Irish side. But to answer your question about Churchill, so Churchill's attitude is much, much more belligerent than uh, Chamberlain's, and that shouldn't surprise us, I suppose. Mm. But Churchill's, remember Churchill had been involved in in attempting to put down the War of Independence, what he would have thought of as the Irish Rebellion, and he was involved with the treaty negotiations, and he was closely involved with the outbreak of the Irish Civil War as well. Um, so, he, he, you know, he had history here. But going back to the, the British understanding of the treaty, Churchill said, Ireland is not an independent country. Ireland is a Commonwealth country. Ireland has no right to be neutral. He said, the legal view, Ireland is at war, but sulking. That's what he told uh, senior civil servants and, and cabinet ministers. Uh, and they told him, well, that's not actually true, because, you know, that's been abrogated now, you know. They actually do have the right to be neutral. And also the position of Commonwealth countries was they had to voluntarily join the war. So legally that was wrong as well. But that was, you know, this is one of Churchill's things. And as you said, Churchill did uh, order uh, contingency plans to be drawn up. First of all, to just take these ports back, because that was the British strategic priority in Ireland. There was an, another plan, uh, Plan W, which was drawn up, which would have involved basically an invasion of the South from Northern Ireland in the event of a German landing. Now, the Irish government's plan was actually to appeal to Britain in the event of a, a German landing uh, for, for military aid. So they were prepared to cooperate. But the British weren't sure about this at all. So Plan W involves things like... Uh, you know, a column striking south to Dublin and taking over Dublin and setting up some sort of uh, military government there, you know. Right. And in, in in 1940, when obviously the invasion fears in Britain itself were, were at a height and there was a German plan, as we might discuss, to to have a, a landing in Ireland. But um, a British military intelligence officer was found in uh, Mulder, and by Irish intelligence, uh, scouting the route south, hmm. you know. So, you know, the British were serious about this if they had to do it. They certainly would have sacrificed Irish neutrality if they felt they needed to do it. At, at various points, apparently, Churchill had to be talked out of, of some sort of intervention in, in Southern Ireland uh, by by uh, more responsible people, I would say, more level-headed people. Yeah, because uh, I know that you know the the Irish Army had then started building secret bunkers in and around Tipperary, uh, kind of be the the command control centre for Plan W. Had there been a German invasion, yeah. Well, the Irish Army had a number of contingency plans, but like the, my understanding is the way it was deployed was it, um, there was a, a division, a, a northern division under Hugo McNeil, deployed in the north. Bulk was was then supposed to be deployed somewhere in the south against a, a German invasion, uh, and all, and also it had to maintain a garrison in you know for like kind of internal security. Let's say. I mean, the, the Irish Army and the Irish government had to be prepared for an incursion by both of the belligerents. Now, of course, that, it didn't come to that, but. There is a difference, though, in fairness, because whereas the Irish government was constantly onto the British government and, and they made a, um, they, they were onto the Americans as well about trying to buy arms or be delivered arms from them, they actually actively wanted military aid from them. A German offer uh, via Hempel, who was the the ambassador, in, the German ambassador in Dublin, which was to deliver British arms captured at Dunkirk to the Irish army to rearm it, oh, wow, okay. as you know, very likely armed, was actually refused. So. Temple met with De Valera and, and he offered this and De Valera said, no, 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 you know, that would be that would be a grave breach of neutrality. So they, they did view themselves as being more within the Allied camp, certainly. But they 
were more neutral than we were probably like now in the, in the early years of the war. What was the possibility of a German and indeed a British plan? I suppose the British plan hindered on the possibility of a German plan, but what was the likeliness? Yeah, well, as, as I said, the British plan was basically, there was two possibilities. One was just to unilaterally seize these ports. Um, the second one was Plan W, which would be in the event of a German landing, that they would basically, you know, occupy the south of Ireland. Um, the German plan was a thing called Operation Green, which was essentially kind of a large raid. They, they envisaged about 3,000 troops being landed in the southeast of Ireland, hmm. somewhere in um, in the Waterford area, and then striking towards Dublin. But basically, this would have been in the event of a, a an invasion of Britain, um, and it would have been a diversionary tactic. The German landing would have been defeated, you know, by by British forces, not Irish forces, because um, you know it would have been held up for a certain amount of time by Irish forces, slightly armed though they were, but it would have been defeated by by British forces coming from from Northern Ireland, and, and we would have had difficult time even getting to Ireland because of the RAF and the uh, Royal Navy mm. having control of the seas there. But it, you know that was what was envisaged. I mean, there was a there was a plan drawn up, whether it was an actionable plan, you know, we, we never know. Now, the IRA, as we, we might get on to, was pro-German during the war. But their chief of staff, uh, Stephen Hayes, drew up a plan called Plan Kathleen, which was for a German parachute landing um, somewhere in County Tyrone. And the IRA were supposed to kind of mass in County Leitrim and, and go over the border to help them. And there was also, I, I, if I remember correctly, you know, talk about it, some sort of seaborne landing in, uh, near Belfast Lock, which is totally unrealistic. Mm. But the Germans weren't impressed at all by the by the IRA plan. Uh, Gertz, the agent who dealt with them, was kind of scathing about it. So that wasn't really a realistic plan. That was just something I already proposed. More likely would have been, as I said, some sort of German diversionary landing in the southeast of Ireland. So tell me more then about the IRA's role liaison with Nazi Germany and and, and the, the German spies that were found in Ireland. Then. Yeah, I mean, where, where to start? Like this is, it, it's a labyrinth and kind of fascinatingly weird story. Like, you have to go back a bit again. So, like, <clears throat> I mean, we have our own ideas about what the IRA is and so on, and they probably refer to either the War of Independence or the, you know, the later provisional IRA. In the 1930s in Ireland, what the IRA was was a very large organisation. A lot of their rhetoric post-Civil War became very left-wing, and for a while they became, their certainly their rhetoric anyway, became dominated by people like Pater O'Donnell and Frank Ryan, who were very influenced by the communism, essentially. And that kind of started to fade away in 1934 when a lot of those people left and they formed the Republican Congress. And what was left was kind of more militarist Republicans. So people who viewed, um, nothing has changed since the Civil War. They cooperated with the Fianna Fáil government for a while, but they were banned again in 1936. Like De Valera legalized them briefly in 1933, but they were yeah. banned again in 1936 because they kept breaking the law. But De Valera, you know, he, he, he passed a, an emergency legislation act initially to put down the blue shirts, but then he... He started arresting the IRA under two other so tried not in civilian courts but under military tribunals. Their perspective, the new chief of staff genre was British administration in, the, in in Dublin, and then you have occupied Ireland and Northern Ireland. That was their perspective. So cooperating with the Germans is no different from cooperating with the Germans in World War One. You know, they, they don't take any and they don't particularly I remember a lot of the more politically politically sophisticated ones have left by now, a lot of the left wing ones have left. They didn't see any significance ideologically in cooperating with Nazi Germany. Well, the Germans' internal politics are their business. We get help from wherever we, we can to free Ireland. And their you know, definition of freeing Ireland was very much this idea of civil war never ended. We still know that 
the legitimate government of Ireland is the dog to carry the 1919 and its descendants. Um, you know, there's there, there's a public parliament in Dublin and there's a, an occupied six counties in Northern Ireland. So yeah. it's all totally illegitimate. We get aid from wherever we can to, to liberate Ireland. That was their, you know, that was their perspective. Now, they, they had uh, contacts with German agents before even the war. Um, the Germans were very impressed by by the bombing campaign that the IRA did in Britain in 1939, just before the war broke out. They were impressed by its its capacity for, you know, basically giving the Brit, giving Britain trouble. And what the Germans really wanted from the IRA during the war was um, some sort of insurgency in Northern Ireland. So the Germans were very happy with the fact that the Irish state was denying Britain access to these Atlantic ports. They wanted to keep the southern state neutral, but they wanted some sort of insurgency if possible in Northern Ireland. So they sent over uh, 12 agents in total, and a lot of them were, were fairly incompetent. Like uh, we, we mentioned before, David, uh, Weber Drow, who was a circus strongman. <laughs> this yeah. is a great story. Like, yeah. uh, but the, <laughs> you yeah, just touched on this, I, and I, I, wonder, I, I have to hear more about this guy. Yeah, I mean, so Weber Drow uh, was not an intelligence agent, but we, he was basically a courier. You know, and he okay. had a cover story. That, that's why they sent him over because he had been in Ireland in uh, the earlier part of the century, and he had fathered uh, two children by two different women, I believe. In Ireland, and, and in Ireland, yeah, because he had been a circus strongman and he'd been touring Ireland. You see, and, and this, so you know, the guards interviewed him and said, "Well, why are you? What are you doing here?" And he said, "Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find my long lost children." No way. Um, but he, what he was actually doing was he had to hand over money and a radio transmitter to the IRA. Uh, but once they once they found this out, which was a little bit later, then they, he was arrested and interned. But uh, in the meantime, he had fathered several more illegitimate children. So, <laughs> wow! <laughs> you know that's the, that's the comic one. But there was a number of, of more serious um, intelligence officers sent over, and the, the most serious was uh, Gortz, Herman Gortz, who mm. was a trained military intelligence officer. Yeah, uh, from the Admir, the, the the Wehrmacht's intelligence. And um, we were reporting actually to an admiral. I, I don't know how this worked in, in the German military, but Admiral Canaris. And his job was much more serious. It was this idea of handing over, yes, handing over money and stuff to the IRA, but like to help to coordinate with them to try to, to uh, get some sort of guerrilla war going in Northern Ireland. Gertz was not impressed at all by what he found in the IRA. So Gertz parachuted into, into County Meath, Beliver County Meath, walked to the Whitlow Mountains to a, a safe house, and then he was in various safe houses in Dublin. He found that some of the IRA, notably Jim O'Donovan, who was a veteran bomb maker, were sympathetic to Nazism, but most of them weren't. Most of them had what he considered to be a very obdurate and uh, old-fashioned ideology, the heirs of the second doll. And he said, well, why don't you infiltrate the Irish army as it stands? And then, you know, you'll have access to weapons and organization. Yeah. And he's told, no, we are the Irish army. And he, what he, he wrote things like, I mean, they're wedded to the failed methods of the Civil War, which is three men in a taxi with a submachine gun, which doesn't work. The submachine gun doesn't work, he said. But he also found they were riven with informers, which, which they were. But this also caused a great deal of kind of paranoia in the IRA. And one thing that Gortz found himself in the middle of was Sean McGaughy, who was a northern IRA leader, and was convinced that Stephen Hayes, the chief of staff, was a spy for the Garda. Hmm. Um, and he had him arrested, and, and he took him to Gortz, and he said... Uh, we think we're going to shoot this guy. What do you reckon? And Gort said, well, I can't, that's not my, it's not for me to say. But he was at large for about 18 months, much to the embarrassment of the Irish government, because this gave kind of ammunition to the many people in Britain who, who um, said Ireland was kind of pro-axis. They, the claim was that he had official protection. He didn't, actually. But he was at large for about 18 months before he was picked up and, and arrested. Um, he was stuck in Arbor Hill, a prison in Dublin, and then eventually he was stuck with the other German spies in the, uh, the military prison in Custom Barracks in Athlone. 
and then there were, after Gertz, there were one or two more. Um, a few of them were Irishmen, okay, who, who were working for the Germans. And the, the idea was, I think, to infiltrate them into into Britain. Um, a lot of them were were very low level agents that were supposed to pick up weather forecasts and stuff like that. But they were all pretty much in turn straight away. Right. There's there's that case. Um, I can't remember his his name, but the RIC constable who arrested Roger Casement. His son ended up becoming a German spy and ends up back in Ireland. And everyone's like, what are you doing here? And then his own father arrests him, sticks him in prison. And then he takes the, because there was a, a bounty on his head, the father takes the bounty. And then once the war is over, the son is released and he gives the son the bounty. <laughs> God. It, it, it's fortunate that Ireland was, was never really invaded. And we have all these funny stories about the war. No? Yeah, that, that's amazing. Yeah, and then there's the other like the the other stories about German U-boats just pulling up at random in various different Irish ports, you know, and that kind of that fans the flames of uh, you know the rumor that Ireland been pro-German. It's the I can't remember the exact number of the boat, but it saves like twenty eight Greek sailors from the Diamante. It was a, a merchant ship, and they just dumped them into somewhere around Valencia or Chile or somewhere like that at the start like it was 1939 so it was very early in the war and that helped yeah and there was a number, there was one or two other ones I think there was one that docked in Dingle and bought some supplies or something like that okay but this kind of um, this kind of fan this narrative though that was abroad in Britain and in certain circles in America like um, David Gray who, who was the very hostile American boy very much took the, the view that you know the government was, was pro-access and stuff the reports were, you know, the Irish authorities were allowing German U-boats to refuel in its western ports, which was not the case. What was interesting about that, though, about those two episodes you mentioned, is that Hempel, the ambassador, is sent back word to Germany, said, don't let them do this, because what this does is it imperils Irish neutrality. Yeah. And uh, that, that's not what we want, because then the British will just take these ports that currently they can't use. So, you know, the Germans were... For purely self-interested reasons, very conciliatory, very respectful of Irish neutrality. Like even Hitler said, the only time Milling will invade Ireland is if the British invade, and then Milling wait for um, permission or, or uh, for assistance from De Valera's government. Unfortunately, Hitler actually said that, we have it on record. For this reason, actually, Hempel had, had a much better relationship with De Valera and the government than David Gray, who, as I said, was the American envoy who constantly had this kind of condescending and hostile attitude. Now, the British envoy, Maffey, um, you know, had quite a good relationship, but again, he was constantly frustrated by his expectation was that, you know, Ireland is neutral, but like it's pro-Allied neutrality, which to a degree was true, but not at all to the degree to which the British wanted. Mm. It changed when the Americans entered the war, as we might talk about. Yeah. And actually, yeah, so let's build, let's work on that then, because... The international pressure for uh, Ireland to change, to switch its neutrality stance, you know, that kind of mounts and we see that with the Donegal Corridor and, and various other issues like that. Yeah, I mean, my take on it, uh, which isn't probably the mainstream take, is that, like, Ireland was pretty neutral up until the American entry in the war. When the war broke out, as I said, De Valera refused to give the ports the Atlantic ports. Mm-hmm. But he did agree to do certain things. He, he agreed to share naval intelligence and weather reports with the British intelligence from day one. So G2, Irish Army intelligence, was working with him from day one. 
what they called lookout posts, so a series of observation posts were established all around the coast of Ireland, and some of them are still there today, they're little bunkers. And their reports of naval intelligence, of sightings of U-boats and ships and so on, were, were immediately forwarded to British intelligence. On the other hand, one of the things that people will always say is, well, the German flyers and airmen who and, and sailors who crashed in Ireland were trying to raise the British word, and that's not the case, I'm afraid. That was only the case after early 1943, because up until then, both... Uh, sides had been interned in Ireland, including the British. Interestingly, this is very interesting, they were treated very, very civilly and uh, like as harsh conditions as the IRA internees, about 500 of them, in, in, also in the Curra. Like the British uh, airmen and officers in, in the Curra were allowed to go on parole, for example. They were allowed to leave prison at the weekends and go off partying. Yes, and one or two of them walked back across the border and they reported to the, to the British military authorities and they were told to go back. And then they were told to return because they'd given their word uh, on parole. Uh, but it's interesting, the British point of view on this is that, like, they were quite happy to see a few of their people interned. There wasn't that many, like, there was about 33 when they were released. Okay. But they were happy to see their people released, uh, interned in Ireland, as long as the Germans were too. Because the, the Irish argument was, well, we can't intern the Germans and not yours, because that, then we won't be neutral. British were quite happy to see that as long as the Germans were interned. It's a funny thing. And, and like I said, they were treated quite well. But they were released in 1943 only. Uh, and this is, you know, very much... Again, under the pressure of David Gray and the Americans, because Gray said to the Irish, well, there's no way you're going to intern any American personnel. And the Irish said, you know, uh, uh, Joseph Walsh, the Department of External Affairs, told him, we have no, you know, obliquely told him, we have no intention of doing that. But Gray wasn't having any of that. So all of the Allied internees were released. And after that, they go up with this formula that it wasn't necessary for a neutral country to intern people who crashed on training missions. So all Allied planes who came down in Ireland were deemed to be on training missions. Right. all German planes were deemed to be on combat missions. And this was the formula they used to get around that. But from, you know, in the latter three, four years of the war, all the Germans were interned and the Allies were, when they crashed in Ireland, were escorted over the border um, by the Irish Army. Moving on to your question about the air corridor, though. So, again, in the early years of the war, you know, and this is one of the reasons I say Irish neutrality was not totally pro-Allied, Irish air defence was actually, you know, defended by the Irish air defence. Uh, British planes were fired on, on a number of occasions when they impinged on Irish airspace. And they weren't hit, but they were fired on. And a compromise was reached in uh, 1941, first of all, with the British and, and the Americans availed of it to greatly once they entered the war to fly loads of men and supplies into Northern Ireland. But this was to have an air corridor over Donegal where Allied planes, but only Allied planes, could fly freely. And the idea was they'd fly over the Atlantic and fly into the bases in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And so again, this was a specific agreement which which did kind of skew Irish neutrality. Definitely. But one point, and um, when we were chatting before this, uh, David made this point, is all neutral countries had to make uh, accommodations, more powerful neighbours, willingly or otherwise. I mean, in the case of Spain, which was, which was neutral, uh, they sent a division of volunteers to fight on the Eastern Front with the Germans. So... You know, morality being one thing, political choices being one thing, but all, all powers made some sort of concessions to the belligerents. By 1940, yeah, so the Americans joined December 1941, and then, you know, they started landing American troops into Northern Ireland. Mm. And with the threat of a German invasion waning rapidly day by day, you know, why isn't it? that Ireland kind of jumps in on, on the Allied side, you know, and, and drops the Neutrality Act. Yeah, I mean, again, you have to look back to, like, these, the people running Ireland had 
you know, a very clear idea that what they were doing was asserting Irish sovereignty. Um, in December 1941, after Pearl Harbor, after the Americans joined the war, Churchill sent a famous telegraph to uh, Blair, a late night, possibly Brandyfield uh, telegraph, telegram, uh, and he said in it, uh, now or never, a nation once again. So the implication is, now that the Americans have joined the war, now is your chance to join the war, and we'll give you Irish unity in response, or in return. And, and just like previous offers, you know, De Valera said, well, this isn't, this isn't a real offer. You know, this is after the war, maybe we'll give you Irish unity. And as, for example, Frank Aiken made clear in his, in his dealings, his visit to America and his meeting with Roosevelt, they were prepared to join the war in 1943. Um, internal subversion, still a factor, but the IRA had very largely been crushed. Like uh, 500 of them were, were uh, arrested and put in the Curra. Six of them were executed, actually, for, for shooting at Gardaí. But it's, it's, for my money, um, the main reason was, um, again, this avoidance of internal conflict, I would say, was right. probably a foremost in de Valera's mind. And the argument that he gave was, well, as long as Ireland is partitioned, as long as there's British troops in Northern Ireland, um, it's not it's not politically feasible. I feel of the view that shutting the war on the American side would have been politically possibly more useful than any costs. So, I mean, it would have engendered an awful lot of goodwill in America, would have engendered an awful lot of money, which is a very cynical way of looking at things, but I think there m- might have been advantages to it, but that's that's not the, the choice that they took. Yeah, true. And I suppose with what happened in Belfast, the Belfast Blitz, you know, being the second, in, in, in I think it was the third raid, it was the highest number of deaths after the London Blitz, you know, so had Ireland joined the Allies, there was always that case and with little to no air defence, you know, the bombing would have been much worse, I suppose, in, in major Irish cities. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, it, that depends kind of what part of the war you're talking about though as well, because True. You know, that, that's a real risk in, in, in 19, say, 1939 to 1942, maybe. Yeah. After that, not so much, because, you know, so much, so much of the German air force is, is involved in the Eastern Front. I mean, uh, talking about the Belfast Blitz though, yeah, I mean, Belfast, Belfast was pretty undefended itself, actually, um, very badly defended, and um, yeah, it suffered horribly because its shipyards were bombed uh, in May 1941, uh, and there was yeah, there was over a thousand people killed, I think, in, in two nights of bombing. Mm. And it wasn't bombed as heavily as some British cities, but on the raids that there were, it suffered really horribly. Dublin was also bombed, but probably accidentally. So what Michael Kennedy, who was the historian of this period um, at the Royal Irish Academy, tells me is that. You know, there's various theories about why the Germans dropped bombs on, on, on the south of Ireland. What Michael Kennedy tells me is that what it was really was German bombers, which had flown to Northern Ireland, didn't find their target, were flying back still with their full payload, and they had to dump them somewhere. So there was various incidents of bombs you dumped in the middle of fields in County Wexford and you dumped in the sea and so on. But two bombers were flying over Dublin on this night in 1941, and they were fired on by the uh, anti-aircraft guns in Dublin, based in Ballyfermot and, and Hoth and Colony, I believe. You know, they, they had to dump their bombs somewhere. They figured, well, we're being fired on. We must be over some sort of hostile city. So they just dumped them. Um, and that happened on a number of occasions. But the worst one was on the North Strand. But there was also bombs dropped on a number of other occasions in other parts of Dublin. Yeah, the South Circular Road, uh, Rathfarnham. And then there was places uh, in, in Wexford. Um, that creamery was hit where there was three women. Two of them, I think, were sisters. They were killed. Um, and there was another couple of you know bombs dropped in around other parts of Ireland as well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, one, as I said, there's lots of conspiracy theories. I mean, one, a plausible one would be the Germans gave a taste to the, the southern government of what it would be like 
if they were bombing them from the air. Um, I'm not sure about that, but the Germans actually apologized for it. Um, but and another conspiracy theory goes that um, you know there was a, a synagogue in the South Circular Road and another one in Terranure, right? Uh, and, and bombs dropped near them. So a Dublin conspiracy theory is that Hitler was trying to get the Jews. Uh, and I, I heard that growing up, you know, but that's that's totally implausible. Yeah, you know, they, yeah, yeah. Especially they then. didn't have anything like you know the precision that they would have needed to do that. Yeah, even for if sure. they about that. Um, but there was also the the rumor that it was because Ireland had sent over fire brigades to help out uh, the fires in during the Belfast Blitz, and so that this was payback. That story gets thrown around as well. Yeah, yeah, and there's nothing like wartime for rumors and conspiracy theories. But like, I, as far as I'm aware, and um, I'm going on Michael Kennedy, who's word I trust on this. I know there's yeah. no truth now, you know. Um, but it, thanks for bringing that up, though, about the fire engines. I mean, that's an interesting part of the story, too, which was another technical breach of Irish neutrality. So in the Belfast Blitz, um, you know, relations weren't great between uh, North and South in, mm-hmm. in those years. Like there, there, there wasn't an official visit between the North and South between 1922, when the Collins Craig Pact and Sean Damast turns on in the 1960s. Yeah. You know, relations were, were very cold for those decades. But uh, on the Belfast Blitz, um, Craig, the Prime Minister, got on the phone and, and asked De Valera for assistance. And De Valera, without hesitation, sent fire engines north, which was a great gesture of solidarity. Um, crews were sent north from Dublin and Dundalk uh, and helped uh, put out the blaze uh, caused by the Belfast Blitz. Um, and then again, you know, you you wouldn't know whether to believe the various stories. Like one story I heard growing up was they were stoned on the Sandy Row or the Shankill Road or something. But you know the more common story I've heard is that they were much they were very well received in Northern Ireland for the help that they gave. Yeah, I think I heard that that rumor as well that they were stoned as well. But yeah, I doubt I doubt I believe it. Yeah, I mean, just when we're going on rumors, I mean, there's another couple of great ones, which is that the IRA were supposedly on uh, Divis Mountain in West Belfast, guiding the Luftwaffe into to Belfast <laughs> fire. Right. You know, it's, it's total cobblers, but that's that's still believed. I mean, that was repeated uh, this week in. Uh, uh, certainly on social media, if right. not in instance in the press, you know. Brilliant, brilliant. I'll yeah, go. wow, that's amazing. Yeah, but that's that's not true. I mean, the IRA was pro-German in the war, but uh, no, that's that's not true. I'm afraid. I was going to ask you about the deserters. The like, there several thousand Irish deserters. So, you know the the story of the Irish army in in the emergency is is interesting enough and what as well because. Like post Civil War, the army had been reduced to a really small size, about eight thousand. But it, it it was small and it didn't have many heavy weapons because its main role was in internal security, and it had to be beefed up massively. Like it was down to about eight thousand, I think, in the thirties, or even less, and it had to be beefed up to forty thousand regulars during the emergency or during the Second World War because, as we talked about, it, David, there were credible threats from both sides to invade, and we were fortunate they didn't happen, but they could easily have happened. And then there was a much larger um, kind of reserve force called the LDF, Local Defence Force Setup, which is the ancestor of the, the FCA or today's uh, Reserve Defence Force. But the Irish Army had, had quite a good pool, though, of quite well-trained regulars. Um, and by, you know, by uh, mid-1941, there wasn't an awful lot for them to do. A lot of units of the Irish Army were set cutting turf, you know. So a lot of these young, quite well-trained Irish soldiers um, once the invasion scare in Ireland, for Ireland had passed, walked across the border to Northern Ireland and enlisted in British forces. Uh, and many of them were very well received because they already had quite proficient basic training and so on. So um, they would have been useful, I imagine, as NCOs and, and so on. Now, 
the issue here is they lost their rights, their pensionable rights in the defence forces as a result of having, you know, deserted. And they lost the right to be in, employed in, in the Irish public service or civil service after the war. And there's, even among defence forces people who I've spoken to, there's very divided opinions on this. Like some, some people will tell you, well, these people did what good soldiers do. They went off to fight the action and they fought in a good cause against Nazism. I respect that. But other Irish defence forces people who I've spoken to were, were not happy at all with the comments of um, Alan Shatters, who was the then minister who pardoned the deserters in right. recent years. And he said they did the right thing. And the objection they had with this was not so much that they did the right thing in fighting Nazism, but that the ones who stayed in the Irish army, who fulfilled their oath, did the wrong thing. So they were quite upset by that. Um, but at this point in time, I mean, I wouldn't certainly hold any animus to people who left the Irish army. So, I mean, I don't know. What's your view on that, David? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I totally understand from an individual's point of view, whereas, you know, if, you're, if you want to be an architect, you want to go and, you know, have your buildings being made. But if you're in a place where you're just drawing up plans all the time and nothing ever happens you're not really being an architect so or like if there's a big football game going outside your door and you're stuck inside you're like all right i'm going out so i understand on an individual basis why soldiers you know who are who are trained ready for war wouldn't fight and then are you know i'm from the bog of allen a nine foot turf it's not very enjoyable so i can see why they went across and joined up but on the other hand, from an official point of view, I, I do understand as well that, you know, they they did desert. They did break their oath um, of service. But in the same time, I suppose you would make concessions because of the times in which they were in. You know, the largest conflict ever fought was, was going on right outside the doorstep. And whether you like it or not, it's probably better that they did go and fight on the right side. To beat the, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, thing about it, the thing about it is, though, is that like, nowadays, we, as World War II is further and further away, we view it almost like Star Wars, you know, as mm-hmm. this kind of morality tale. And rightly or wrongly, that's not the way the Irish government viewed it at the time. They viewed it as a war between great powers where Ireland had to plot its own course and look out for its best interests. Um, it wasn't until after the war, you know, that, or well after the war, that, that the, the view of the Second World War is this battle between right and wrong became kind of amazing. And most of them joined up for the same reason. People joined up in the First World War, I suspect, like you said, for, for action, for adventure, you know, because mm-hmm. they've been trained soldiers. Um, I think we shouldn't romanticize it too much. I mean, even though certainly I'm glad that the Allies won the Second World War, but, you know, it wasn't Star Wars. It was it was also a, a battle of great powers. Well, you think there's often it's often said that Ireland kind of sticks its head in the sand um, with the introduction of like censorship or the limitations on visas or travel permits, you know, for, for people, for Irish people to go across and, and help rebuild British cities or, or whatever. You know, why, why do you or think... To do more, or to work in war factories in a lot of cases. Yeah, definitely. Way. Yeah. So, I mean, why do you think, why do you think De Valera introduced censorship and kind of just tries to hide the Irish people from this colossal conflict that's going right outside the door? Yeah, well, again, it goes back to all these, all of the... Ver- members of de Valera's government virtually were, were veterans of the revolutionary period and of the First World War. And they cut their teeth in that period. And they viewed this very much through that light. So as I said, they viewed it as a great power conflict. They remembered 1914 and, you know, the so-called Rape of Belgium, mm. where, um, and German forces actually committed more atrocities than, than we think. They actually were quite bad, but not, yeah. but not as bad as, as, as they were painted at the time and so on. 
Um, and, but what De Valera and his, his, um, and his colleagues remembered was that these had been greatly exaggerated and they'd been used to recruit loads of Irish recruits, um, you know, with John Redman and so on back in the First World War. They constantly had this in their mind. So they tended to view the reports of atrocities and the reports of, of what we now know as the, the Holocaust with disbelief. You know, they just didn't believe them. Wow. And what they were doing with censorship was, um, you know, they wanted to avoid the stirring up of any opinions that would endanger neutrality. They had quite an authoritarian kind of mindset on this. And as Frank Aiken's job description was the Minister for Defensive Measures, but Aiken was a very first censorship. You know, he, 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 banned, um, he banned films, for example, that showed Allied forces in kind of a heroic light. He wouldn't allow weather reports to appear in sports reports in the Irish papers because this might be useful to the Allied side. Now, I mean... This, the, the nonsense of this is that you know Irish intelligence was was cooperating full time, giving actual weather reports from weather stations yeah, to the British yeah. and the Americans. I, you know, I, I suspect they can went a little bit too far here, but yeah, certainly, like the idea was that to protect the Irish public from any uh, anything that would stir them, and that was their firm line. And as I said, they, they stood to it, no matter who could try to persuade them. So I mean, like you just mentioned there. Frank Aiken doesn't give weather reports on sports articles, but on the other side, Black Sod Bay in County Mayo is providing weather, well, all Irish weather stations are supplying weather reports to the Allies, most famously Black Sod Bay in Mayo, which gives the Allied green light to launch Operation Overlord, the invasion of Normandy on D-Day. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... It's kind of, there's a, there's a certain level of hypocrisy here, because as I said, even at the very start of the war, de Valera uh, guaranteed to the British that he would share naval intelligence. So, you know, reports from the lookout posts of, of naval activity and weather reports were collated in that loan um, by Dan Bryan, the head of intelligence, and, and immediately passed on to, to the British. And this was going on throughout the war and later the Americans. So there was a certain level of kind of hypocrisy and double standards going on. The Irish public was never told about this. D-Day, the invasion of of occupied Europe. One of the problems that they had was a series of really bad storms in the English Channel. And that actually stymied, uh, I think I'm right in saying, the first, uh, the initial date of, of D-Day, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, it was meant to be um, the 5th of June. Right. And it had to be postponed because of really bad weather. Now, the weather, the prevailing wind is, as we, I'm sure most of us in Ireland know, is from, comes from the west. So it, in, in other words, it comes across the Atlantic, it reaches Ireland first. So Ireland has a taste of what weather is going to be like in the English Channel ahead of time. Yeah, so Eisenhower and, and those in command of, of Operation Overlord uh, had to know if they would get a break in the weather mm-hmm. so or whether the operation would have to be postponed altogether. Yeah. And so the advanced weather warnings from Ireland, from Blacksod Bay you mentioned, and County Mayo were of the utmost importance because what they told Eisenhower was that, yes, you will get a break in the weather on this particular day and you have a window to launch the invasion on that day. And the, the precision of it was like the weather was actually going to be really bad afterwards as well. Yeah, like, it was. It um, was going to be postponed yeah. for another. I think it was like three weeks or something. Not until the twentieth, into the twentieth of um, June. So yeah, it was it was really bad thing. Yes. So I mean, this this is really important stuff. So like, um, yeah, I mean, and it does show how the sharing of, of intelligence really, really was an aid to the Allied war effort. And certainly by that point, Irish neutrality was pro-Allied. There, there's no two ways about it. Yeah. Because you know this was concretely aiding the, the Allied war effort, and also you know things like the air corridor and the things like uh, aiding crashed uh, U.S. and British planes whenever they they, they crashed Ireland. But yeah, so that's why it just it boggles my mind that it's so hypocritical that, especially in the later part of the war, we're clearly pro-Allied. 
but we're still trying to tow this no we're going to be a neutral state line and and as we mentioned before like states like Italy they turn Finland yeah yeah, well they kind of had to really Um, so states flipping their allegiance was a done thing and it was kind of stubbornness really that that De Valera doesn't I think De Valera had this commitment to um, you know abstract principles throughout his life now he found ways of getting around them all the time as well <laughs> you know the oath of allegiance I'm thinking of but he, this is an aspect of his character I think yeah. so you know his policy is we declare free neutrality and neutrality is what it's going to be and we, if we have to bend the rules around the edges to get us over the line that's okay yeah. but this does help to explain I think uh, the most notorious episode probably so, so obviously the most the most mind-boggling part of the whole thing is De Valera, upon the death of Adolf Hitler, sends his condolence to the German ambassador, Hempel. Not only sends his condolence, but I visits and, and conveys his condolences in person. So, you know, so, okay, De Valera's argument is that this is the protocol on the death of a foreign head of state. That's all he does. No more, no less. But it, to be honest, in the context of, of Irish neutrality, what it is is, is two fingers to... Um, especially to David Gregg, as I said, the, the, the American envoy, and also to, to the British, because the British and the Americans, and especially, as I said, Gregg, were, uh, have been pressurising them to close the German and Italian legations in Ireland. And Hitler had always refused to do this on the grounds of neutrality. It wasn't the best considered thing, in my opinion. You know, one thing I will say in defence of de Valera is that there's no question in my mind that de Valera was a sympathiser with Hitler or a supporter of fascism or anything like that. Like, even in the 30s when the rise of Hitler and Mussolini in continental Europe, De Valera had no sympathy with them. You know, he, he said he, he disliked these uniform movements that savoured of dictatorship. Hmm. You know, this is in, re- in reference to the blue shirts as well. So, yeah, yeah, of but, course. But, but De Valera never had any sympathy for, for fascism or for Nazism. Um, to a certain extent, he went along with this idea that it was just another great power war. But the condolences to to Hempel on the death of Hitler, certainly it looked very bad. It did make it appear as if everything that they'd been saying, that we were really pro-allied neutral power, was all cobblers and so on. Yeah, like, so Churchill, in his his VE Day speech, actually, and not only in a thing on Ireland, but in his VE Day speech, Churchill took time out to to have a go at Ireland and to uh, famously said that Mr. De Valera had been cavorting the Italian and with the German ambassadors in Dublin. And that you know they had left Allied airmen and crews to die off the west coast. Not true, really. But and he said at any point we could have come to close quarters with Era, but in a spirit of forbearance we chose not to. Yeah, and you know Churchill took the opportunity of VE Day, no less the actual VE Day, to nineteen forty-five to to elucidate these thoughts. And De Valera famously responded, you know, with, with this um, with, with the radio broadcast of his own. Yeah. where he said, you know, uh, so much for the freedom of small nations and so on, and so much for the saviors of occupied Europe if you were prepared to invade this small country just because we chose to stay neutral. And, and then he started going on about, um, you know, the partition of Ireland and how it was as great a crime as, as the German atrocities. And this, you know, it looks very bad in hindsight because, of course, you know, wh- while the, the condition of nationalists was not good in Northern Ireland, it can't be remotely compared to, to the position of, of Jews or any occupied people in, in, under, under Nazi occupation. But certainly the optics of don't offering your condolences and then Churchill saying that as well on the VE speech, yeah, doesn't doesn't put us in the best light. No, in hindsight it looks very bad. 
Um, and then, as I said, it is informed by this idea that, that most of them have that this is really just a great power war, that it's an imperial war, and it's no different really from the First World War. Yeah. And I think, I suppose, in fairness and hindsight, we have to say that's not really true. It's like, it, you know, if the Germans had won the First World War, you know, it's not actually not an entirely democratic regime in Germany, but you're not looking at, you know, murderous tyranny across all of Europe, which in the case of the Nazis, you would you would have been. Mm. Um, you know, as as you probably know yourself, David, like the, the German plans for post-war Europe were even worse than what they actually did. You know, they had a thing called the General Plan Ost, which uh, involved basically the mass murder or deportation of all the entire population of Ukraine and Western Russia, and their replacement with German debtors and so on, as well as the mass murder of all the Jews who lived there. Yeah. So, in, you know, the, the Nazis, they really were a special case. And, you know, even though I, I think Irish neutrality was a respectable policy, and even though I, I understand their, their points about it being a great, great power war, there was something particularly bad about Nazism. And the least that de Valera might have done was to forego this diplomatic nicety, I think. It, it's left a bad taste. And I suppose the bad optics of that, uh, um, you know, that really affected Ireland. The ramifications, long-term ramifications of that are long felt in Ireland. It, it, it prevents us and our entry into the UN. Yeah, like, I mean, it, it prevented Ireland from being a part of the Marshall Plan. Yeah. Not, not just the De Valera Hempel thing, but, you know, Ireland's attitude towards the war. Um, Ireland got some aid under the Marshall Plan, but it was a loan rather than, than a grant. It probably, until maybe even the days of Kennedy, um, coloured the attitudes of American administrations towards Ireland. A number of German operators and a number of German officers actually ended up in Ireland after the war, and, and some of them were, were harboured. So, you know, there, there, was, there was some sympathy for Germans post-war. The case of Gertz, who I mentioned, is, is kind of interesting. Um, Gertz, as, as I mentioned before, was a German agent, a uh, military intelligence agent who liaised with the IRA, uh, and he was interned from 1941 until 1945. What's interesting about Gertz is it shows a, a number of things. First of all, he was released at the end of the war, and he was initially given um, leave to stay in Ireland. It appears as if the British or the Americans pressured Ireland uh, into reversing this. So in 1947, this was reversed, and Mr. Gertz was issued with deportation orders in Dublin Castle. And, you know, Gertz was a, as a guy who had a few kind of, he, he had a certain amount of delusions of grandeur. So he had been a spy in Britain before the war. He had actually been imprisoned in Britain in the 30s uh, for spying on RAF airfields. But he thought that if he was handed over to the British, he'd be executed, which is probably 90% not true. I mean, he had a guarantee that he would not be handed over to the Soviets, who were quite capable yeah. of executing them, but the British probably wouldn't have, have done more than debrief him, or so I'm told anyway. That's you know how tells me that. But anyway, Gortz didn't believe this, so when he was issued with his papers in Dublin Castle, he uh, he swallowed a cyanide pill, which he had brought with him. Um, so presumably this was all planned, uh, and he, he died in hospital, uh, despite, in- interestingly, uh, the attentions of a Jewish doctor in Dublin Hospital. Yeah, Gortz died. But at his funeral, I mean, a number of senior kind of Fianna Fáil people, including Dan Breed, uh, were there. And uh, unfortunately, there was a swastika flag on his coffin. And there was a number of women gave kind of Nazi salutes. So right. again, that kind of thing looked very bad. Yeah. Like Ireland was not really pro-access, but there was enough of that kind of messing, I would say. Yeah. Most of it looked very bad. And of course, there's the case of the well, one of the most high-profile Nazis, Otto Skorzeny. Yeah. He, he he gets to stay in Ireland, gives talks to various different historical societies around the country and gets to stay for a while. He's in and out as well. And then there's also, there's also like Ireland doesn't take in 
certainly prior to the war, it doesn't take in a huge number of Jewish refugees either. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's I would say, another issue. I mean, that is true, right? Mm. That's also true of Britain mm. and America, you know, before the war. As, you know, casual anti-Semitism was unfortunately the norm, yeah. you know, before the war. I wouldn't confuse those two issues. I don't, like the Germans, there was this kind of anti-British thing, but anti-Semitism, sometimes it overlapped. In the case of, for example, Oliver Flanagan, who was a Fine Gael TD, um, it was the most kind of pro-access TD in the Dáil during the war. Okay. Like the Dáil was one of the one places where you could say what you wanted. So, for example, John Dillon, Finnegal was very pro-allied, you know, in contrast to the government policy. Oliver Flanagan strenuously to British internees being released in 1943. But Oliver Flanagan was also an anti-Semite. I mean, he said uh, one of the great things that Hitler did is he, he got the Jews out of Germany. And one of the first things I want to do if I get into government is to root the Jews out of Ireland. Wow. You know, yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to imagine today, but the, unfortunately, these attitudes were more mainstream than we might than we might think. Yeah. Um, and you know, as I said, in the IRA. Mostly they collaborated with the Germans, you know, out of kind of opportunism. But there were some who were, who were hardcore anti-Semites and, you know, pro-fascists as well. But Jim O'Donovan would, would have been um, one of the main ones. Uh, Jim O'Donovan was a bomb maker. had been a bomb maker all the way back to the War of Independence and the Civil War uh, and subsequently. Um, but he was in sympathy, as he told Mr. Kurtz, with, with Nazism. And Sean McGaughy, who was a Northern IRA uh, leader, who, uh, he was the guy who kidnapped Steve Higgs. Uh, he, again, was sympathetic ideologically as well and that wasn't the mainstream position in the IRA but that was certainly there you know and on the other side as well of the civil war divide because you know that was still in the back of people's minds there have been people who passed through the blue shirts and stuff in the in 30s and, and they had you know some sympathies as well for kind of far right I say like again going back to Gortz disappointed with the IRA yeah and did, so we looked around for other people did Gortz write I, I might be paraphrasing this but was it Gortz that said Basically, the IRA are willing to die for Ireland, but not fight for Ireland. He did say that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he said he said a lot of things like they have a number of fine young fellows, but their leadership is is rubbish, and their their methods and their ideas are, are out of date, kind of thing. But we he kind of gave up on the IRA at a certain point, and he looked around for other people, and uh, he went looking for. Uh, although interestingly, Jim O'Donovan, as I said, the IRA man, uh, put him in touch with Ono Duffy. Now Ono Duffy, of course. He's a one-time IRA commander himself to the War of Independence and a very ruthless one in his own day. Um, but of course, he passed through the Civil War on the pro-treaty side and then the Blue Shirts, which he was the leader. And he went off to Spain, of course, to fight for, for Franco in alliance with Nazi Germany in 1936-37. Um, so Gortz met him in secret, although, as I said, he was introduced by Jim O'Donovan. And oh, the idea was that uh, O'Duffy would put him in touch with Irish army officers and he did. Uh, um, Niall McNeil and Hugo McNeil, who were cousins, uh, the son and nephew, respectively, of Owen McNeil, right. one-time minister. And Hugo McNeil was the commander of the Northern Division of the Irish Army. You know, uh, and Niall McNeil was his, his main intelligence officer. So senior people, they met with courts. And um, what they hoped to achieve was that um, in the event, this is 1940, remember, but in the event of a British invasion that the Germans would supply arms to the Irish Army. And they hope to do this behind the back of the de Valera government. And they'd be in pro-treatyites and from that background. Right. You know, and this really serious treasonous stuff. Yeah, despite yeah. the fact that, uh, that Dan Bryan, who was the head of intelligence, knew all about this, probably would have been too politically sensitive to do anything about it. So, like, as I've said, Irish neutrality was not pro-axis, but it, unfortunately around the, the edges, you know, there were elements of pro-axis feeling in Ireland. Okay, so most people hate when I ask these kind of questions, but it's it's fun to play around with the what ifs. So, what would happen if 
Ireland had joined the Allied side. Yeah. Now, like, you know, the disclaimer uh, that any history person is supposed to give was, well, we should never do counterfactual history. Yeah. But here goes. <laughs> uh, so, like, let's let's take a number of, of what ifs, right? So, what if Ireland joined in 1939 at the outset of the war and mm-hmm. gave Britain the ports uh, like they wanted them to? So, this would have been, in my estimation, a major mistake because you would have had Ireland would certainly have been bombed, cities and ports would certainly have been bombed in Germany. Definitely. And they would have no means of, of defending themselves. In addition, there would have been very strong currents within the IRA, which again is, is not a it's not an insignificant organization. It's there's serious amount of, of support for them still. And the Irish Army. Yeah. You know, that would have been very hostile to being in the war on the British side. So there was a very real prospect of, of internal conflict, maybe even a, a civil war. Sure. Had Ireland joined the war in 1939-1940. Yeah, the certainly, side. yeah, they might have been emboldened to to do oh, something. I certainly, certainly would. I mean, I I I think the the possibility of internal conflict is very high. Uh, on top of you know, the fact that Germans would certainly have bombed Irish cities and so on. Um, and, and, you know, whatever infiltration the Germans sent as it was, and some of it was kind of comic stuff, like yeah. you mentioned, uh, control, but you know, it would have been much more serious had there been this kind of situation in Ireland. So, yeah, it would have been possibly a very nasty situation. Um, what if the Germans had landed in Ireland, as Ireland would have been obliged to join the war then? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting one. I mean, you know, the, the as, as I said before, I mean, the a German landing would have probably been diversionary, you know, and it probably would have been defeated. But again, you're looking at very nasty hornet's nest that kicks up in Ireland. Like, um, the Irish army would certainly have fought the Germans to the best of their ability. Mm-hmm. Um, what the IRA would have done and what position they would have been in, I don't know. And, and remember, the IRA is not just like, you know, the 500 out they locked up. I mean, the IRA, as, as courts found, was not a terribly well-run organization in the 1940s but they do have a lot of members and they do have a lot of sympathizers and there are a lot of arms dumps and stuff buried around the country so you know german landing would have again would have meant a british incursion and again it would have been an internal conflict as well as an external conflict so okay that's the second what if and thank god neither of them happened the third what if though is we discussed this before what if ireland had joined once the americans joined the war which is you know 1942 really december 41 42 in that circumstances, I mean, they would have been a massive influx of American personnel into South of Ireland, like there was in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, there might have even been a small Irish expeditionary force, like Brazil, for example, sent troops to Italy in, in 1944-45. They might have been looking at something like that. There would be much less chance of, of internal conflict over that, I'd imagine. Nevertheless, I mean, Ireland might have been open to some, to, to some uh, German retaliation. Certainly, Irish shipping would have been targeted yeah. Um, if they were in a position to, to still bomb Ireland by that period, I'm not sure, but um, or if they didn't be in a, in a position to use the new rockets, I don't know. You might know more about that, David. V2 rockets probably, mm, I don't know their maximum range off the top of my head, but getting from, even if they launched them from the Channel Islands, I'd say you'd be still, you'd be fairly safe from them, I would imagine. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but I, I, I think that they, they didn't have the longest range on them. And then on the Irish shipping as well, like, even though we are a neutral, the a large number—I can't remember the exact number—but a large number uh, of Irish shipping was sank anyway. Yeah, I, I, occasionally by the British as well, by, mm. by mistake. Yeah, but mostly by the Germans, to be fair. But yeah, I mean, I can't help the feeling that you know joining the war on the American side wouldn't have been a bad move from a purely cynical point of view. Yeah, That's, and certainly from a political standpoint, later on, you know, the, the long-term ramifications would be far more beneficial to Ireland. Oh, certainly. So. I mean, 
yeah, the 1950s was obviously a really stagnant decade in Ireland economically and socially and every other yeah. way. And that, that might have been better had Ireland joined the war on the American side. Yeah, and had they got the uh, the Marshall Plan money, you know, who knows what they would have been able to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, I mean, you know, one thing that we overlook nowadays is, you know, in these days of free trade is that Ireland didn't have free trade even with Britain in the 50s. You know, and the British were pretty harsh. Like, And, and this is, again, partly a result of resentment over the war. You know, the British, the, the terms of trade with Britain are, are not that great for Irish agricultural products, which is our main export yeah. in the 50s. And this is all partly, um, partly a legacy of the war as well. Let's do the what if Ireland was proper Switzerland neutral. Ooh. Do you think we would have been able to maintain that? Hmm. If Ireland is proper Switzerland neutral, it means no weather reports, no naval intelligence, no cooperation with airmen who come down, no, none of that. Mm. Um, one of the differences between Switzerland and also Sweden, countries like that in Ireland, is that they had a much better prepared military and, and they had national service conscription, Definitely, yeah. uh, much larger military. Uh, like people would would have balked at invading Switzerland because it would have been a you know a tough ask. Um, if Ireland had been Switzerland neutral, it's very possible the British might have just stepped in and, and taken those ports. That's what I was thinking. I, I would say because Churchill, was, as I said, was was very keen to do this in any case. So I, I think they just about got that tightrope right. I must say, you know, had they just been staunchly neutral, yeah, I think, I think certainly the types like. Churchill would be like, all right, well, if you're not going to play ball with us, we're just going to take the ball and the pitch, you know. Um, exactly. And, and the thing about that is that... Like, I'm not Churchill saying that's good, you know. But, no, but that's, that, that's, that's real politique and everyone in a war looks out for their own interests. But, yeah. I mean, like we mentioned before, Churchill was talking about doing this and one of the reasons he was dissuaded was, you know, uh, military and naval intelligence were saying to him, actually, we're getting very good stuff off these guys as it is and we don't want to endanger that. Mm. So, and, and I mean... The ports thing became less pressing because they built a huge um, naval port in Derry um, during the war. Yeah, and and they and um, they occupied Iceland as well, so that kind of helped. Right, right, right. So the, the ports thing became less pressing after forty forty one. But yeah, I don't think we could have pulled off Switzerland neutrality. I'm sorry no. to say. No, I don't think so either. I was going to ask you something like, do you know the way World War Two is kind of the benchmark of military history, mm. and so. I use the example there of France, which has throughout the last thousand years an outstanding military history. But because they surrender within, I think it's like six weeks or something like that, you know, they get slated with the, oh, they're just a bunch of, you know, white flag wavers, really, you know, they're... Surrender monkeys. Surrender monkeys, yeah. Cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Isn't that what Homer Simpson calls them? Yeah. So, yeah, so like, so that sticks and, and that's hard to shake off. And I suppose... Do you think that there's an element of that still resonating with Ireland and our, you know, our neutrality and our, you know, the the idea that we were pro-German neutral? I mean, it's brought up kind of hostile observers in various places, you know, uh, from time to time. It's it's not something I think that we still have to be, you know, ashamed of or, or, or wear like an albatross around our necks. Ireland looked out for its own interests, the same as every other country did in the Second World War. And as we've discussed, with the possible exception of a late entry on America's side, Ireland's best interests were in neutrality. And, yeah. and that's that's the hard reality. It wasn't Ireland's responsibility to look after occupied Europe, yeah, true. or to you know, or to fight against uh, fascism. It was to look after its own interests. One thing I will say, and this might be my last remarks on this, is like in Northern Ireland, there's a mythology of the Second World War emerging now, which is kind of quite contrary to what the reality was. 
Like in Northern Ireland, conscription was never extended. It's the only part of the UK where it was never extended. And even though unionist politicians um, occasionally said that they wanted this just to show how loyal they were, the general public in Northern Ireland had a very strong memory of the massive losses of the First World War when there was no conscription either, but when lots of people joined up. And so Northern Ireland, like I understand the rates of recruitment in Northern Ireland were no higher than the rates of recruitment in Southern Ireland, even though that was neutral. You know, and people of the kind of loyalist persuasion want to adopt this, you know, that that's that's also kind of bludgeoning the history a little bit. Okay, so John, thank you so much for coming on and having a chat with me there today. Let everybody know where they can find you and all your work. Yeah, so you can find my website at uh, theirishstory.com and you can also find the podcast that I do with my friend Cahal Brennan at theirishhistoryshow.ie. Brilliant. John Dorney, thank you very much. So there you have it, folks. John Dorney from the Irish Story website and the Irish History Show podcast. I had great crack talking to John. He's a really great guy. Um, I hope you really enjoyed that. Apologies once again for the sound quality. It's not my finest work, but because we're still in lockdown, I can't really do too much about it. Plus, I'll be honest, I'm not a sound engineer, and most of the times, I don't know what I'm doing. You can find John at the Irish Story website, and you can find his podcast, The Irish History Show, on iTunes, as well as many other places. Thanks again for all your support online. It really does, I know I say it a lot, but it really does mean the world to me. Thank you. And if you can become a patron for as little as three euro a month, please do so. It would really help me quite a lot. You can find my Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish at war. But until next time, good luck. <laughs>